Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centered design practitioner based in Dublin, Ireland. And this week I caught up with one of my design heroes, John Thakra, whilst I was hosting the incredible Service Design Days conference in Barcelona recently. Now I was so happy to speak to John, having read much of his work for such a long time and currently reading his fantastic book, How to Thrive in the Next Economy, a book that has led to the Wall Street Journal to call John a cutting-edge design expert, or even the great Bill Mogward stating, whatever you're designing, keep this book next to you. Now, I'm lucky to say I have a signed copy of this book in my hands right now, and to be able to the chance, all you need to do is go over, request to join the Slack channel on thisishcd.com, where I'll be giving the book away inside there. Now, in this episode, we discussed John's work at great detail, his keynote at Service Design Days, and spoke about the greater purpose of design, and maybe even human-centered design isn't broad enough, as it should include animals and the greatest resource of them all, the earth. Now, this episode is definitely one of those where you'll want to listen and then repeat. So here we go. John Thacker, a very warm welcome to the This Is HCD podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah, so we're coming live at the Service Design Days conference in Barcelona, and I saw your uh, excellent keynote this morning. So we'll get a little bit into that after we discuss who you are and how you got to where you are today. So I'm by trade a writer, although I studied philosophy. And my whole life has been, um, as a writer, looking for stories about people living in ways that could be described as hopeful alternatives to the ways that we're living now under the general framework of sustainability and search for something better. Yeah. And you're a senior fellow at the Royal College of Art? I am indeed associated with the Royal College of Art. I work with quite a lot of universities on a kind of external basis as an advisor and a helper, setting up new programs for the most part which are all in more or less um, have in common connecting with the outside world from the Academy or the Ivy Tower. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. So the keynote that you delivered this morning, tell us a little bit about that and where its origins began for you. Well, I talked today about, with the title Good Growth, about the difficulty we all have in design and the economy generally of reconciling the awareness that we're doing damage to the planet and our own social kind of structures Hmm. by an economy which keeps on growing and growing without end, apparently, and the difficulty of arguing or acting in a way that would stop that growth happening. Hmm. And I spent many years of my life telling people that growth is bad, and that doesn't make much difference because people don't like to be told unwelcome news. So my focus the last 10 years of my life really is on activities that make the world healthier but don't necessarily make the GDP higher and certainly don't extract more energy and resources from the planet. Mm. So making your place healthier is for me a kind of benchmark of good growth mm. because when our place is healthier, we are healthier as people and as communities. Yeah, And that's sort of kind of a trick to get around the question that nobody can really accept the idea of not growing. Mm. And what I'm basically saying, well, we don't want to grow in the old way, we want to grow in a new way where we add health, add vitality to the places that we all uh, share. Yeah. And I know when we, when we first met the other day, uh, one of the first things that we spoke about was human-centered design. And you being a philosopher, you came back to me with saying, well, I have a problem with the title human-centered design 
because it doesn't include uh, the likes of animals and plants and it really should be life-centered design and that is a, a great segue into like you know discussing how we can as designers include that type of thinking into the methodologies of human-centered design and not just as designers so i've spent a long time coming to the conclusion or just being taught by scientists and by not just by modern scientists by wisdom traditions like you know buddhism and uh, all the faiths actually have a similar worldview, which is that everything is connected and that human beings are not separate from the planet that we live on, we're part of it. And that from the tiniest bacterium to the biggest climate system, everything in one way or another affects everything else, even if we can't identify that. Yeah. Once you make that your framework for being a designer or being any other actor in the world you start to be a bit more cautious about maybe there are things that will happen as a result of me doing something to the situation that would be undesirable. Hmm. Whereas so far, particularly the modern economy, growing, 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 innovating, innovating, innovating is the kind of default mode of action. Yeah. And I'm actually reading, I've got the book here in front of me um, to show you like the, How to Thrive in the Next Economy by John Thackeray. And I'm only in the early chapters of it, but you make a really good point about innovation. You know, if it was such a great thing, you know, why do we have all these problems with climate change and you know, global warming and all these huge issues like with mental health and stuff? And it's a really, really strong point that innovation could be seen as a dirty word. For some reason, we need uh, the crutch of words. Creativity is another word. Innovation, <laughs> progress, modernity, development. There's all these words that sound incontrovertible and you know, automatically good until you then look a bit closer and look at the consequences of them. So innovation, as far as I can figure out, is neither good nor bad. It depends what you apply it to. Hmm. So, for example, the financial system, which nearly finished us all off in 2008, is the result of incredible innovation by very clever people. Hmm. But the reality for the planet and the people uh, you know, who are affected by its behavior is very, very bad. So it's just we fetishize this word for, I don't know why we have, but policymakers love it, corporate leaders love it, they think that it's automatically good to innovate, and I think, hey, wait a minute, we should say innovate to what end and who benefits. Yeah, which goes back to the, the life-centered design piece, it's, it's the bit I'm going to hang on a little bit longer. Uh, within that, I don't want to say framework, you gave a couple of uh, examples of life form that contains within a raindrop, you could see that there's something so minuscule, but there's so much life in it. Well, I'm just like everybody else at this conference in Barcelona have spent much of the last 20 years being mesmerized by the internet hmm. technology and the amazing things that it can do. And it's only in the last 10 years that I've been exposed to and happily met botanists and biologists and ecologists who say, wait a minute, nature contains incredible complex Systems. networks of its own and yeah. systems of its own it's just they're not visible because either because we don't look at them at all or they're underneath our feet or they're in the air or they're tiny like bacterial systems and so simon sublime was a twitter character who does incredible 200 magnifications of a drop of water in order to show us millions of bacteria and we only know about a tiny percentage of them mm. And so this is where you think, well, innovation to kind of change the way we drive cars is, you know, it's okay, but it'd be much more exciting to me if we could focus more energy on understanding the life that's already been here and on the, just right literally on our palm of our hand when it's raining. So what, what does that mean for the designers? Like, like it was really, it was a super interesting talk, but I know there's probably designers out there that said, what can I take from this 
and how can I apply this learning back into my into my day to day job in an organization that may be like say there's a couple of guys here that were in you know FMCG and they were in other like SaaS products and stuff like how can they actually take what you're talking about and, and apply it to their day to day lives? Maybe I could do that in two bits because it's not, yeah. I don't want to pretend that it's easy no, to go I'm, to your. I'm not expecting you to give me a ten word answer. To global <laughs> soap company and say, by the way, we have to stop making soap. Yeah. It's to do with so the all of life thing is that we need a filter when we're thinking about changing the world at all, whether it's mm. the kind of where we live or the products that we use or some kind of infrastructure or some kind of social organization. And I've just discovered that if we begin our inquiry with the question, will this be good for all the life that is in this place, that actually makes it easier to say, well, wait a minute, if we don't know for sure that it'll have a positive effect, maybe we should pause for a moment. Mm. And the world is filled with unexpected consequences of well-intentioned actions that, yeah. you know, for, for generations from uh, you know, climate change being a, a global one. Nobody set out to change the climate. Mm. We had all sorts of brilliant engineers saying, look, I can burn this coal and I can make this train go really fast and I can change the way we experience time, etc., etc." Yeah. Nobody in the entire history of the Industrial Revolution said, let's see if we can trash the planet. Nobody yeah. did that. But now we know things that we didn't know then. So rather than things, I don't think we should beat ourselves up. It's a very unfortunate mm. condition we've arrived at. But okay, next step, let's see what we can do to make the place healthier. Rather yeah. than saying, oh my God, we have to stop doing all these evil things. How can we make this river healthier, this forest healthier, the playground outside our kids' school healthier, mm. the air in our cities healthier? Yeah, uh, Break that down into little bits and... It's always possible to find a, an action, however tiny, you know, like uh, growing food at the schoolyard or, you know, restoring a bit of little creek that feeds into the bigger river. There's always things that you can do. And I just think that those little actions are very kind of therapeutic, even if they don't automatically save the world. Mm. That's part one. Yeah. Part two is, how do you go to the boss of your gigantic FMCG company and say, by the way, we have to stop selling soda or soap or mm. crisps? You can't do that because these companies are operating according to principles and incentives and structures and laws in many cases, yeah. which require them to grow, which require their officers to deliver increasing benefits to the people who own the shares. So it's, again, there are some people who are pretty incurious, but for the most part, they're not evil people doing evil things because they hate the planet. Mm. They're saying it's my job to increase shareholder value. Yeah, make the business grow. To me, like organizations are like the hungry hippo game. Do you remember the hungry hippo game in the 80s where yes. the hippos just kept eating all the white bulls? Right. So how do you stop the hippos eating all the, all the white bulls? I think that any sentence containing how do you stop people doing something I've just it, learned some bitter experience. It will end in failure. Because if you say, you must not do this, or you can't do this, or we can't do that, people just basically filter it out. Yeah. They zone out. Yeah. Therefore, the trick is, and the art, and I don't pretend to be an expert, is to no. say, what, can we think of an activity which is positive and creative and creates value in the world that we can do mm. that in some way or another down the line could be also conceived as a benefit to the company as well as to ourselves and the world. So it's a little bit like the Hungry Hippo game where they, they eat one of the white bulls and then they do some good. So like they, they eat something and they do something else. Because I know, like I've watched a lot of documentaries where you see these large like fast food companies and you know they might 
pay for a playground yes. close by. Yeah. And it's like, maybe I'm a, a cynic. I definitely am probably closer to being a cynic. But what are your thoughts on that as regards to saying, well, look, you know, we know we're making people fat, but we're also giving them a, a playground to run around, play off and burn off that energy. My own experience is that I think there are two sorts of big companies. The majority are, as I said, framed by incentives and laws about shareholder value and very misguided uh, mm. frameworks that have evolved over the years. And a smaller number are just plain evil and they regard it as a sign of weakness if you worry about the planet or children's health or stuff like that. Nestle. I, yeah, well, I'm not saying it's, they actually have a sort of macho culture. My dad worked for a, basically a good company, Procter & Gamble, for 44 years. Mm. Quaker origins um, yeah. do no harm as a kind of philosophy. Yeah. The fact that in aggregate some of the products and the services that they've evolved over all those years did create damaging situations, mm. not to mention the somewhat old-fashioned view of women, for example, that is a byproduct of their desire to grow rather mm. than a byproduct of being big or small. Yeah. And I think that I had arguments with my dad all his life about, you know, do we really need to have all this uh, detergent going into the sea? Yeah. Healthy uh, discussions, not arguments. I think so. And it, but it took us a surprisingly, you know, decades to reach a rather good um, understanding that we both maybe had some kind of good points to our arguments. Yeah. That was interesting. Yeah. So there was a really interesting quote. You're going to have to help me fill in the gaps in the quote because I've seen a lot of information in the last two days about the power of the small elements and how they can actually help transform the bigger element. Tell us about the quote, and that to me is the crux of the entire conference. It's the power of the individual designers and how they can actually help transform organizations for good. And I know there's designers listening here, they see the potential and they see the opportunities in these organizations and they want to transform it but they may feel alienated and they're not empowered enough to do it. And that quote was the one that hangs for me over across the entire conference so far. So that quote was probably the father of complexity science, Ilya Prigogine, mm. who said that uh, in an unstable, complex system, small islands of coherence have the potential to change the whole system. Yeah. And I love two things about that. One is the notion that the things that I search for are small islands of coherence, people doing a small food project, small river project, a small social care project, which appears to be infinitesimally small compared to how big the awfulness is. Yeah. But that therefore small is not less important than big in a complex system where we can trigger a change. Yeah. And then the second thing I like about that is that it doesn't require you to change the big thing in one hit. Hmm. And I, I completely sympathize with the many designers I've known over many years who are kind of in trapped or basically hmm. in living and working in a big organization which has very clear requirements to grow, to innovate, to transform, all these words. And fighting them directly, I think, is probably not usually a good idea. It's futile, yeah. I once was a so-called director of research at the Royal College of Art. Mm -hmm. And I started that job filled with the zeal that I was going to turn this place into an outward-facing green organization. And I issued all these edicts and told them what to do, and the professors all completely ignored me. <laughs> and so that was when I learned that you don't change, and that if it could be a big institution like a, a university or a company, you can't tell it to change. And indeed, the fathers and mothers of complexity science are like, you know, warn us not to even try. They said the way that you change the system is intervening around the edge, doing little projects that in some way or another tweak the system. And yeah. then the big thing changes, hopefully at some point, but unfortunately you never know really in advance when that's going to happen. 
Can you give me examples of where you've seen this work quite well? I mean, my whole life is filled with little examples. Um, mm. I'll give you an example of the food systems of France, which is, although they have quite a lot of small farms, it's still dominated by agribusiness and big mm -hmm. European programs. And they had a very kind of popular but clunky box scheme called NEF, which was all about people delivering a soggy box of cabbages to your door on a Thursday night, like some of us have experienced. Yes. And a guy called uh, Guillaume Chiron, who is a chef but also an industrial designer, said, surely we can organize this in a more kind of convenient mm. and fun way. And to cut a long story short, he created a platform called La Rouche, which okay. is like the beehive, which is a way for local people to, to connect directly with the growers in their region. They mm -hmm. can order online. It's all much easier and more fun. And there are like 600 or more of these now in France, completely transforming the system. But each one of these interventions is tiny. You know, it's one ruche organizer and 20 families and maybe 10 farmers. Yeah. But if you multiply that by 100 and then 1,000 and then in the near future 10,000, lo and behold, the otherwise unstoppable agribusiness has been sort of eaten away from within like, like a termite nest. Yeah, well, it's it's fascinating. There was another example you had, um, I think it was in Chile, was it? With Abby... Abby Rose. With Abby Rose. Abby Rose doing it. Was that in Chile or was it in South America? Well, there was two... The, one of the other examples that inspires me at the moment is called Our Field. And it kind of comes out of the bread movement. And so I've got this theory that bread people and beer people are very happy, but yeah. sometimes they, they meet obstacles. I had two hands up when you said that yes. at the conference. Yeah. I was like, I eat bread yes. all the time. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, no, you have to make bread. I'm talking about bread makers. I know. But the, uh, the beauty of bread is that when it's made by hand and with love and joy, then it's clearly much better. Mm. But it's not per se local a lot of the time because... Local heritage grains have disappeared from most of Europe and big chunks of the US uh, during the industrial period of agriculture. But, of course, there are people out there saying, we must have heritage grains so that our bread can be local and local, pure. Right. And, of course, this turns out to be complicated because it's difficult for the farmer to take that risk yeah. just to please a few foodies or activists. Yeah. So our field, set up by Abby Rose and some friends, is a kind of collaborative grain field growing mm. venture whereby 50 or 60 citizens may invest 100 pounds or 200 pounds in this case as the kind of members of the association that takes joint responsibility for the field with the farmer and then they discuss together and share the risks together of saying well let's try this seed or let's try this approach wow. and so if it all goes horribly wrong which apparently does quite a lot in the first few years then the farmer doesn't go bust or you know lose his farm, and the the people that are working with the farmer learn very quickly that actually growing grain is a complicated business. Yeah. But because it's shared and it's kind of a social activity as much as a business one, probably more social, they have fun and joy, and they kind of in, you know, meet new friends. And, and they so, learn. And it, they learn, and they get, yeah. and they, the whole thing becomes kind of um, a, a shared enterprise. That's what they're what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, it's excellent. John, we're coming towards the end of, of this conversation around your, your keynote, but um, there's a couple of questions we always ask guests when they come on, and I'm going to ask you the three questions, okay? So tell us the one professional skill that you wish you were better at. I would very much like to hear the sound of my voice less, even though throughout <laughs> my life I've told myself the same thing. That is to say to listen to people, even when they are not providing me with the clear instructions or answers that I'm waiting for. Hmm. because I do know that people need time and they need to know they're being listened to in order for them to have the confidence to kind of get their thoughts straight. 
But I've always been far too impatient and say, yes, you mean, and I start to fill in the gaps, and that's very irritating for them and probably unproductive for us both. Oh, excellent. Second question, John, is what is the one thing you wish you were able to banish from the industry, and the industry being the design industry or, or broader business industry? It's not a, probably a very serious thing, but I get very bugged when people stand up and say, what I'm interested in is, and I always feel like saying, I don't care what you're interested in. I want to know what I'm interested in, and please don't keep telling me what you're interested in. It's a kind of it's an artist do it worse. It's a little kind of tick throughout mm. the creative industries, which I think they should make me personally very happy if they could stop that. Excellent. And what advice, John, would you give to designers for the future? Avoid hanging out only with other designers in a pretty uh, spirited and extreme way it's a big problem that designers sit around talking to each other about what is design and it's not doesn't get them very far get out of the house get out of the studio get out of the design school and meet people in the outside world that are not like you that you may not understand you may not even like them but make that a, a practice in your life and it'll be so kind of refreshing to have connections and conversations with people you weren't expecting to excellent uh, i totally agree with that um, so John, if people wanted to reach out to you and get in touch, tell us how uh, they might do that. If they very sensibly want to buy my book or just connect with me, I have a website called thakara.com, T-H-A-C-K-A-R-A.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. And it's, uh, yeah, there's 25 years of blog posts and all wow. sorts of stuff there. Well, yeah. wow, you know, it's, the world will not end if it all burns tomorrow. But it's, I'm rather proud that it's there. Absolutely. And I can totally recommend the How to Thrive in the Next Economy, the book. It's great. It's available on Book Depository. It's available all over the place. My, my wonderful publishers, Thames and Hudson, who I get on really well, do a good job. Yeah. It's coming out in China in a couple of months, so I'm wow. very excited about that. Yeah, what they'll make of it, I have no idea. That's excellent. But uh, we'll find out. Yeah, excellent. What I might do, actually, while, I'm, while I have you on the podcast... I'll buy another copy of this, maybe sign it, and we'll, we'll do it a giveaway on, on the podcast. That would be brilliant. Yeah. John, thanks so much for your time for being here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Jerry. Thank you. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>